0: Uh, honor honoring widows indeed and uh, honoring uh, elders double honor if they rule well including uh, paying them so uh, and I think he continues talking about elders you've got the paying the elder in 17 and 18 then you've got the discipline of sinning elders in 19 to 21 and I think that 22 to 25 ought to primarily be seen in light of the idea of appointing elders so, let's see what you all think about this. Would somebody read 22 to 25?
1: Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden.
0: So, what's his warning in 22? <coughs> Lay hands on anyone
2: too hastily.
0: Lay hands?
2: <coughs> Smack them.
0: <laughs> Smack slowly. Yeah, I think laying hands on someone in terms of appointing them as an elder. A lot of times the custom was to uh, lay your hand on somebody as kind of an installation procedure, as kind of an inauguration procedure into an office. And uh, you see, for example, in Acts chapter 6, when uh, you have the twelve that are select, seven that are selected to uh, take care of the uh, ministry to the widows, uh, in verse 6, these they brought to, before the apostles and after praying, they laid their hands on them and uh, there's some other passages I think as well that would give you kind of that uh, idea uh, don't ask me where but uh, uh, I think he's saying be slow about appointing somebody as an elder now why would you why Why would that be an important uh, requirement you don't want just
1: anybody to be Okay. You need to know who they are. And, well. And you need to know what they are, really. You know, if they are a faithful servant and have their qualities.
0: Does that take a while? It can. Why is that? Um, because the sins of some men are conspicuous, but the sins of others appear later. So you, first impressions are sometimes inaccurate. Sometimes you can't tell what somebody's really like on the surface. I think sometimes we're too quick to trust our own ability to analyze our first impressions. Somebody can appear pretty good for a little while, and it takes a while for their real colors to show. And if you appoint an unqualified elder, oh my, that can be a real problem the prevention of that is a whole lot better than the <laughs> cure there is a church that i was involved with uh, after all this had happened but but oh they had they split and and one of the contributing factors was they got a guy came in and they appointed an elder very quickly he was hospitable he was friendly he was nice he was you know a leader he was whatever And within just a few months, I think, or a year, year and a half, they'd appointed him as an elder. Um, And only later they find out he'd he'd come in from other churches all right, but he'd cause problems all the places he'd been as well. (laughs) And uh, he was a big factor in splitting that church. And, uh, you know, there's just a lot of bad in appointing somebody who may look good and seem good, but he isn't good. So be careful about that. And the appointer, look at the end of verse 22. The appointer bears some responsibility for what the appointee does. You appoint somebody too quickly before you really know their character, then you sort of share in their sins when they prove themselves to be unworthy of that work. So, he's just telling Timothy, you know, go slow on appointing. Don't just jump. That's a good principle for other things besides appointing elders, don't you think? You ever uh, misjudge somebody in your first impression? I remember... um, moving to a church one time, and there were um, about three people that really impressed me when I tried out and talked to the group and so forth, and really probably those three people were kind of the uppermost ones in my mind when I moved there. Because they, one, they, one of them seemed like just really mature and would be great friends for us. One of them was a younger guy who seemed really enthusiastic. One of them was an older guy who really seemed to care and be sincere. And probably as much as anything, those were the things that kind of tipped the, the, the scales and the balance, you know, and all that. Well, come to find out, the one couple that we felt like would be close to ended up being probably my worst enemies in the congregation. And the younger guy turned out not to be very solid and not to really follow through very much on his enthusiasm. The older guy turned out out to be kind of senile. And, uh, you know, so much for that. There were other people, thankfully, (laughs) in the group that I hadn't been taken by that turned out to be really solid and very helpful and encouraging. But that was good for me because it kind of helped me realize, you know, I'm not very good at this first impressions business. And, and I think what, it's, what I need to learn, I don't know that I always have, what I need to learn is the need to be cautious about endorsement, cautious about recommending, cautious maybe even about entrusting myself. You know, it's easy not to really see the full picture. Sometimes, as he points out in 24 and 25, that can be on both sides of that. Sometimes the people who don't necessarily make much of a first impression turn out to be the people with real quality. Uh, You know, you don't always see who's really doing well when you first look. Who do you usually see first? The people who stick out. And why do they stick out? What sticks out about them? their personality or yeah, usually their mouth. You know, guy who talks a lot, you're gonna notice. and you may be impressed by, but you know not everybody uh, who's really got character talks a lot. In fact, proverbs might suggest the opposite. <laughs> and uh, yet you may not even notice some of those people at first. Uh, so be be a little cautious about receiving or rejecting somebody too quickly you may not really know them for a while it takes a while to really analyze character and for people's fruit to be manifested, maybe there's some people that are pretty transparent and you can pretty well tell about, you know pretty quickly, but other people it takes a while you know, so now I haven't dealt with 23 yet but as far as 22 to 25 without 23, you got any questions or comments about that? What would be some good applications of you know not relying on first that? uh, I mean, for somebody who's not a preacher or an elder, um, I guess to apply that appropriately. Well, I think just holding back a little bit on our judgment about people. You know, you just jump to trusting somebody or you jump to thinking they're no good. Slow down. Get to know somebody before you form a very strong feeling for their character, and don't entrust something to somebody, whatever it is, until you feel like you really do know them well. Um, you no, know, and I think I mean don't don't recommend somebody too quickly. Don't promote somebody. Somebody wants to know who'd be a loyal friend. Well, I just met this guy. He'll be great for you. <laughs> well, maybe he won't. You don't know. <laughs> uh, I mean, sometimes we're less impressed by people we're familiar with. The prophet is not without honor, except in his own country. We're often more impressed by the new face on the block. But there's something to being tried and tested. We may have kind of lost, you know, it's kind of like, you know, think about a, think about a, oh, say a, a guy who's looking for a girl to marry. And, uh, you know, he's got the girls he's grown up with. And, you know, he knows everything they've done wrong in all their life and every stupid thing they've done and all that. But he also knows they're solid girls who've grown and developed. And and he knows their track. And then comes this new face, this, you know, girl breezes through that just looks like, wow, she's missed everything. I'd say be slow about that. You know, it's easy for somebody to put on a good front for a week or two or a month or two. You know, you might be better off with the girl who has quality, who may not be as striking to you because you've known her all your life. Uh, I I think it's often easy for us to be enamored of somebody new. And really testing somebody over a period of time is more valuable in general. What do you think about all that? You know, that's something I, you know, I I think in our society, we're very transient. People move around a lot. And sometimes you don't mean, you know, people, you don't develop a a deeper long-term relationship that helps you really see somebody's true character. And that's kind of a weakness of that. I mean, you know, some people, if they stayed in the same area for very long, you know, pretty much everybody would figure them out. But if you keep hopping around, you know, sometimes it's easy to kind of hide. I mean, people are like that with churches. You know, there's some good reasons to change churches sometimes. I'm not always against that. But, you know, sometimes people hop around from church to church to church. To, you know, they don't want to stay too long to where people find out what they're really like. Or maybe they stay just long enough for people to start finding out and that's why they move on. I don't know. Like I say, it's not always wrong to change church. But, you know, that can be something where, you know, wow, we just, you know, preachers are sometimes like that and they can't stay anywhere very long. There's some reason to move on sometimes. That's not bad. Paul did that. But if it's just because, man, when people start to figure out you know who I really am, I can't stay, then that might be a problem. What about 23? You know, it seems to me like when he says, keep, yourselves free, keep yourself free from sins, sin, that leads him to kind of an aside. I, that's the only way I can figure 23. It seems to me like this is kind of a, you know, footnote. <laughs> keep yourself free from sin. And he's sort of guarding that, what he said about, Purity would not be misused by Timothy to some sort of kind of ascetic restriction. You know, don't drink water. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Um, Timothy, keep yourself free from sin, but I don't mean by that that you should quit taking your medicine. Which had alcohol or was alcoholic or whatever. Man, you know, alcohol has some medicinal properties. So other drugs that can intoxicate have some medicinal properties. And Paul, when he says keep yourself free from sin, is not saying avoid all medications or invi- avoid all intoxicating medications. Although he says to use how much wine? A little. A little. Now, I think this would probably be an appropriate passage to think about with the with the current epidemic of abuse of prescription drugs. It's probably always been around. I've known, you know, since I was a kid about people who've abused prescription drugs. But it seems like it's growing. And and, and we need to be careful about that. Just because it's a prescription medication doesn't mean we can just take unlimited quantities of it. Some of that stuff will addict you. Some of it will affect your seriousness and sobriety and thinking and so forth and so we do need to be careful to restrict the quantity of our consumption medication in some cases. It depends on what it is and what it does to us but medication that sort of you know messes with our head you know it's more addictive and, and whatever we really need to be careful about that. Um, what about using this passage to say it's okay to, uh, to drink? Would this be the passage to go to for that? I don't think so. I really don't think this passage really tells you much of anything about that. If anything, I think it probably speaks against that. You know, because it looks to me like Paul is seeing Timothy as somebody who, you know, might even reject medicinal use of alcohol. So... Apparently, Paul viewed alcoholic beverages as medicine for the sick, not uh, beverage for the healthy, or something like that. Um, If anything, I think this passage would probably go against the idea of of drinking. I don't think it really deals with the question, per se. I mean, this is talking about the use of medicine. So I don't think this can be used pro or con. For, for drinking but if anything I think it would be a con because if you could just drink anything you wanted to then you wouldn't have to say this it's amazing how in my judgment it's amazing how sometimes people will use passages that really don't deal with whatever they're trying to deal with a brown van is that theirs? I'll move over here then continue comments and questions further about me? Chapter 5. I was
1: just kind of thinking with that verse 23 thrown in there amidst all of the choosing of elders, I was wondering if maybe the process was getting, you slow.
0: Hey, that sounds good to me. I had never thought about it that way, but. <laughs>
1: I lost more sleep when a church was choosing elders, with good reason for losing the sleep. But, you know, <laughs> out of all the things that the church did, choosing elders was the hardest.
0: Well, it was
1: intense. in.
0: Well, and you've got uh, passages yes. like uh, Acts 14 right where on. when they chose elders, they fasted. Yeah,
1: I mean...
0: You don't see fasting every time you turn around in the New Testament. True. So, I mean, I think that would also be an indication of the seriousness of that task, you know. So
1: the first thing that came to my mind with this was, he's probably got ulcers involved
0: all this. <laughs> Timothy. i have to remember that. Maybe. We're at the very end of First Timothy 5. So, any other questions or comments on chapter 5? All right, we are still talking about honor. Honor to widows, honor to elders, and now appropriate honor in the slave-master relationship. Would somebody read chapter 6, verses 1 and 2?
1: All who are under the yoke of slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and other God's will not be spoken against. Those who are believers, as they masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because they, those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles.
0: Okay, so he's talking to who? Slaves. Those who are under the yoke as slaves. What do you usually use a yoke for? So that really shows and stresses kind of the degrading nature of slavery, sort of being treated as an animal, you're under the yoke of slaves, you know, how would that normally make you feel?
1: Degraded or debased, not equal.
0: And therefore, resentful, yeah you feel degraded you feel put down be easy to be resentful to be bitter is a slave less of a human being than a master well of course not i mean i bet there were plenty of times when slaves were smarter than their masters and more talented than their masters and all that and yet they were slaves they were under the yoke that would be a very challenging situation to live with man and especially for us, who are people so dedicated to freedom. I've got my rights, you know. Nobody ought to be able to tell me what to do. And you go back and you think about Paul is addressing these slaves. And, and what does he say these slaves were supposed to do?
1: their
0: masters is with honor yes wow to honor and respect their masters which would be the thing you wouldn't want to do because they may not be showing you much respect I mean the very idea of them ca- counting you as a slave is not exactly respectful and you honor them and what's the reason he gives for that So the
2: name of God not
0: be spoken against. Now, it's interesting that those aren't exactly the same reasons he would give for, say, the relationship between husband and wives or something like that or parents and children. Uh, the, the slave-master relationship is not inherently God-ordained. It's simply an economic relationship. But in that relationship, you're a slave. So as not to discredit the gospel by your conduct and by your attitude, you ought to Honor your masters. What if your master is another Christian? Serve him
1: all the more.
0: Yes. Now it'd be easy to think that he's a brother. He has no right to tell me what to do. But he doesn't look at it that way. Spiritual equality does not eliminate distinctions in roles. I mean, think about other relationships like that. A parent and a child can both be Christians. And yet the child needs to submit to the parents. A husband and wife can both be Christians. And yet the wife needs to submit to her husband. You know, elders and members can both be Christians. But the members need to submit to the elders. So also the slave needs to submit even to the Christian master. And not say, abuse the privilege. In fact, he says, serve them all the more. Why? Why serve them all the more?
1: Because you love them because
0: they're brothers. Yes, and why else? What does he say? They partake of the benefit? Who does? The masters. Yes. Because the person you're serving that you're benefiting as a slave is another brother. That's an interesting way to look at that because it transforms the concept of what the slave's doing from mere, you know, drudgery and obedience actually giving a benefit to the master. You see, Paul's not looking at this so much as, well, you just got to do it. He's saying, you'll be able to help out a brother, your master. You'll be able to benefit them by working hard and respecting them. And so Paul is not degrading slaves. He's saying, well, you ought to honor them more because you're actually helping a Christian brother. comments and questions on this little section
2: but we don't have slaves today we don't I am.
0: are you <laughs> <laughs>
2: we're not even going to ask who referring to him, <laughs> I'd
1: be a good master <laughs>
0: But, would you appropriately refer this to some concepts of employer-employee relationships? I think so. It's not the same, obviously. Uh, An employer in our culture does not have the employee under the yoke. But, there ought to be respect and honor shown so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. And uh, more yet, if the uh, beneficiary is another brother. So, I think some of the principles would apply in an employee-employer relationship. It, God, I don't think ever mandated there be a slave system. He just regulates the slave system. But on the other hand, he does not say it was wrong. You know, now it's probably wrong. You know, the way we got slaves in this country was wrong. We kidnapped him at gunpoint. <laughs> you know, kidnapping is condemned in First Timothy 1. Uh, but, you know, a lot of times their slavery could be somebody even just selling themselves voluntarily into slavery. Uh, pay off debts or to take care of them because they weren't able to provide for themselves or whatever. Uh, all right, other comments and thoughts uh, on those first two verses?
1: Well, there are other places where it talks about the um, the opposite direction and masters, yes, treatment of the slaves, and to equate that to an employee-employer kind of relationship. It is easier to deal with other brethren overall. Both directions.
0: You would think so. Absolutely. Which, if
1: things are going the way they should.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: And when one part of that breaks down, it's It
0: makes it real difficult, too. Yes. Yeah, if a brother's not a true brother in their conduct, that could be a real problem. But the best employee and the best employer should be another brother. They ought to be much more fair and just and kind, and and the employee ought to work harder and be more dependable and trustworthy, etc. You know, Christian principles ought to make you a good employer or employee. Other thoughts and comments? All right. Um, We kind of shift gears then, I think, for this last uh, part of the book. We've been dealing with the proper honor, and he concludes in verse 2, teach and preach these principles. But there are some other matters that he kind of comes back to. So, uh, verses 3 to 5.
2: If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain.
0: Whoa. Who is he talking about here? that disagree and advocate yeah. a different doctrine. We call them false teachers. You know, they these ones that do not preach and teach the same thing. They do not fit with the sound words the doctrine conforming to godliness. <laughs> One of the things you see in that whole idea in verse 3 is there's a standard. There is a norm that all teaching ought to be measured by. And that norm is the doctrine given by Jesus Christ. The sound words, healthy words that Christ gives. And that's a doctrine that fits godliness. uh, That fits uh, a life dedicated to God. Somebody who teaches something different from that. Well, Paul doesn't have much good to say about a person like that in verses 4 and 5, does he? What does he say? He's conceited and understands nothing. Yes. He's conceited. He's, he's uh, you know, the very idea that you can invent something of your own to teach that's not according to the gospel is pretty a, pretty much a prideful attitude. You know, that, that's really, you know, kind of boastful. And uh, he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions. These, um, you know, false teachers like to just argue about things. They like controversial questions. They like things to be able to debate about and to discuss and, and to be able to speculate about. And, and it, what they do uh, leads to a lot of wrangling and a lot of harsh words and even suspiciousness, there is somewhat of a, almost an attitude that enjoys, you know, intellectual debate. That enjoys coming up with some newfangled twist and being able to try to promote it. Um, that's, That's a real dangerous thing. And it leads to false understandings of the gospel if I'm looking for some newfangled teaching to be able to you know um, make a name for myself or to be able to come up with some interesting discussions you know to throw out some questions that will get a lot of people riled up that kind of attitude is not the attitude of a love for God that will lead us to the truth when I was in Brazil this last time now, there's a man who's a fairly new convert and a, in many ways a good guy. I've known him for a little bit. But uh, he'd taken a few that on a, particular, uh, on a particular passage that was not right. And it had some pretty serious consequences that he'd taken that view. And he'd gone around and tried to get some other people to believe it, too. And he, he admitted that he just really liked controversy. He just really liked... You know, debating things and, and and these kind of discussions that that was, and, and so he got together with me about 11:31 night. He and another guy, we talked for a little over two hours, and uh, I mean, I told him I was really worried not just about the issue, but about the attitude, and this love for finding something new and different, and love to, of, of being able to argue. And, uh, and you know, you could tell it a little bit because he made a point early on in the discussion. I said, okay, now what about this point? And I pointed some things out about it, and he agreed with me. It wasn't a valid point. I said, I don't want you ever using that point again. You just see it's not a valid point. It's, it doesn't prove anything. You agree with that. I showed you that. Yeah, it's right, I said, I don't want you using that anymore. He must have come back to that six times in the discussion in two hours. When he when he get tight where he was, he'd jump over <coughs> that. I said, you know, that's just not really honest. It's not very honorable. You agree it's not a fair point, but when you get when you when you don't have an answer here, you jump to it anyhow. That worries me about your attitude. And I talked to him. i looked at some passage in First Timothy. And I talked to him about his his mentality. I think he did change from that after that, and I was thankful for that. I think he is a good guy in many ways. But this this craving for controversy led him to wanting to believe something that's pretty tough to believe, as it t- uh, turned out. And, uh, you know, Timothy was dealing with the same sort of thing. You know, think about it this way. Sometimes, um, people who need nourishment look for stimulants. You know, we need something solid to feed on, but what we'd like is a big old fight to get excited about. You know, it's kind of like, you know, I don't know a lot about all this, but I suspect it's not very healthy for some of the younger generation to max out on all these energy drinks and super energy drinks and super, super energy drinks or whatever. Because I suspect it doesn't really provide a lot of nourishment. It just hypes up the system. And whether I'm right about that or not, clearly the Bible is intended to nourish us. It's intended to be our food. It's intended to build us up and strengthen us. And if it just becomes sort of a debate battleground that's really fun because we get to argue a lot. We get to prove we're right and prove we know more than the other guy. If that's what it becomes, it's really not very edifying. It doesn't really nourish us much. I don't know. I talked too long about that. But do you have comments about verses 3 and 4? So this is kind of revealing the true motives of false teaching. I think it is. Instead of them just actually believing what they're saying, this is their true motives for why they're teaching it. Maybe it's why they believe it. You know, I mean, believing something's kind of a weaselly thing. This, uh, this guy I was talking to, I think he believed it. I think he believed it because he wanted to find something controversial, and he enjoyed that. But I, think he was, I don't think he was being dishonest with me. I think he really did believe it. But I think his love for those things, you know, we sometimes believe what we want to believe. You know, there's more to belief than just the evidence. A lot of times our desire to believe something causes it to believe it. So I think, yeah, I think he's showing what, they're, what leads them to believe and teach these false doctrines. Now in some cases they don't believe it either. And I think we'll see that in verse 5 sometimes. But sometimes they believe it. But well, why do they believe it? Because they don't really love God. Because they've got other motives behind what they believe.
2: We get caught up in an argument too and then it becomes winning the argument and you you know, we may use something that we wouldn't normally use but we, we, we've we got to prove the point. And we were, I, I remember a, in a group discussion someone did that and it's like spur of the moment we're getting ready to vote on something well such and such passage they did this and then we had the vote and we went back later and I was talking to him I said that passage is not talking about that. Oh I never said it was. (laughs) I said then let's go get the tape of the meeting where you said it. Oh well I, I misspoke but it got the vote that he wanted by saying you know, a spur-of-the-moment type of thing and, and saying something and, and uh-huh. using a passage that had nothing to do with it to win the argument,
0: not to find the truth. Yeah. Well, and, and, yeah, and there's dangers in those things. I, you know, there's a lot of danger in taking a position and then being unwilling to back down. You know, I mean, I wonder how many times in Bible classes somebody has said something just kind of off the top of their head, kind of off the wall, and then when it got shot down they bristled up and were going to defend that. I really think some positions brethren have taken and caused a lot of trouble among a lot of brethren have just been things like that sometimes. You know they said something stupid they preached something that they hadn't thought out and then when it got attacked they felt like they had to defend it and they developed a whole doctrine to try to defend it. We would. One thing you need to remember as maybe a challenge for every one of us but I'll tell you what when you're wrong just admit it cut your losses and go on don't try to defend something you're wrong in. You know, it's not worth it it'll just get worse you will you'll end up having to twist more stuff and be more dishonest and be more wrong just say you're wrong and if somebody says they're wrong let them off the hook they were mad enough to say they were wrong don't crucify them over it just go on we're all wrong sometimes and, uh, you know, if we would just do that more, we'd have less motivation to try to prove whatever harebrained things we happen to say. Because we all do that every once in a while. There's another motivation in verse 5, isn't there? In the end of it?
2: Looking for some kind
0: of gain. Yeah. Has anybody ever preached anything because they thought people would pay him more for it? You ever hear radio and television preachers that are always asking for money, preaching on um, how God calls us to, um, you know, to poverty and to failure and uh, how the greatest servants of God have mostly been people who have not been successful in this life? They don't seem to say that. I wonder why they don't say that. that probably wouldn't generate the big bucks we'll pay for that. <laughs> that's exactly right you know someone has said, this is kind of cool the apostolic succession of Judases has never failed <laughs> Been plenty of people willing to sell the Lord you know, uh, all through uh, history and there is, money is, wow a dangerous thing and our attitude toward it, our greed for it I mean people will do all kinds of stupid things to try to get money and, and, you know, greed is a factor sometimes in why people teach and preach what they do. It'll be more popular or whatever. Well, anything you want to say through verse 5 then? Well, he kind of takes off on that covetousness idea and runs with it. Uh, verses 6 through 10.
1: Now godliness with contentment is great pain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in in their greediness and pierce themselves through with many sorrows.
0: All right. Godliness is a means of gain. when, When we're content. And he works on that whole contentment attitude. Now think about this. If Paul thought they needed to be taught about their attitude toward possessions, how much more we do. Wow. I mean, rich people back then... Even the filthy rich people back uh, then—they didn't have switches in their houses where you turned on lights. They didn't have uh, ways of getting down the road at 60 miles an hour or through the air at 500 miles an hour. You know, think about all that you could say about all that. (laughs) Wow. And and you know, what does he mean by contentment? Happy with what you've got and not worrying about getting more? Yes. How can I be happy when I just have this? Do you ever feel like that? I'd be content if I had that. I can't be content until I get that. Is that contentment? Contentment is being content with what you have. Not with what you think you'd be content with if you had it. Because you know what happens? If I'm not content with what I've got right now, I wouldn't be content for long if I had ten times that much. And you watch and see. That's exactly the way people are. What does he say, um, well, what does he say we really need? Food, food and clothes. Yeah. <laughs> Verse yeah, seven. yeah, verse 7, nothing. you know, didn't bring anything in, you won't take anything out, better to travel light. I mean, you don't have anything when you die, you didn't have anything when you came to the, the world. It really didn't make any difference. I mean, when, he's all, when it's all said and done, material wealth is irrelevant. It doesn't really make any difference when we die. I understand that it varies our lifestyle. But when it's all said and done, if we live in a hut or we live in a mansion, we're still the same people. God will give us what He thinks we ought to have. And so we need to learn to be content. If we got food and clothes, thank God for them. That's all we really need anyway. But we get so caught up and possessed by all that we crave. You gotta have this, you gotta have that. And you listen about uh, people whining about. Oh, I want this, I need that. Wow. Wow. The things we think are essentials. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Be content. Because the other side of it is wanting to get rich, and what does that cost? yeah, lots of temptation that really destroys us. It's kind of like drug addiction. You know what happens with drug addiction? you start taking a, I don't know what you call it you take a, a you know a certain dose of the drug and what happens after time? Why? Yes Yes. You know, your body develops a tolerance for it and you got to have keep getting more to keep getting the high or the trip or whatever. <laughs> and, 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 and material things are like that. The more <coughs> you get, the more you crave. The more you crave, the more you crave, the more you crave. And it's the truth. It's amazing. You watch it. You take people ways dirt poor and they start getting money pretty soon. Oh, they're once just sore. It's like, you know, you never grew up with this. Grew up driving an old pickup truck, and now you're not satisfied until you've got the latest, newest sports car. Where'd that come from? Well, the more we have, the more we want. The more we want, the more we want. And that is so bad for us. You know, we set our heart on things, however much it is. It's just so destructive to us. He says the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. If you want to get rid of the weeds, you got to pull the root out. We've got to pull out this love of money, this desire for things. Because it's just going to create all kinds of terrible things for us. But I think if there's anything we struggle with, it's that. I mean, man, it's so hard not to think that way. It's so ridiculous. We have so much... And yet we crave so much. And we we value what we've got so much. It becomes so important to us. It's not that it's wrong or bad to have things. Thank God for the things we've got. It's wrong to want them. It's wrong to crave them. It's wrong to put our heart on them. It's wrong to care. It doesn't make any difference. That's That's not what life's all about. we got a lot or a little. It doesn't make any difference. But it does make a difference to us. Way too much difference to us so often. And... Man, he's really, he's really plain spoken here. What do you think?
2: Those rich people really have a problem.
0: They do, man. (laughs) Yeah. Isn't that the way we think? And I wish we could have that kind of problem with the Lord and wanting more.
2: And, you know, I think we should get to that point of where we want and we want and we crave and we crave. Instead of you know, why do we always crave things that don't matter? It's just not it's not what we're doing. And yet the things that do matter we just seem to be
0: so hesitant to do. Yeah. It's not bad to have desires, we just need to have desires for the Lord and spiritual growth and not for these things.
1: Jesus had a lot to say about rich people. A lot. I mean, when you think about it, there were so many things. The rich young ruler, the rich man and Lazarus, the poor widow, and the,
0: the rich you know, fool. The,
1: yeah. There's so many places where we're warned of that.
0: That's really true. And several places in the epistles, you know, James Fox pretty strong about that. And, uh, I think we do what Chris said. Isn't this a lesson those rich people need? I mean, I'm wondering, does anybody think they're rich? Would anybody ever apply this to them? I mean, I go to Brazil. Whoa, they'd all say we're rich. Not all of them, but the vast majority of them would. Because we're a whole lot richer than 95% of Brazilians. We're a whole lot richer than the richest people in the world 200 years ago.
1: Well, any of us that earn money have a responsibility to use it in an appropriate way and in a wise way.
0: And to think of it in the right way, to have the right attitude toward it, not having this fixation on it, but being content with what we have. He'll say later, being generous with it, ready to share, not putting our heart on it, The money is not the issue in and of itself. The money is kind of the occasion for this. The problem is the love of it, the desire for it, the discontent over it. You know, money itself is nothing. I mean, really, money itself is just paper. (laughs) But even things are nothing but when we crave them and want them and long for them and set our heart on them. And isn't it easy to do that? how many of us i mean you know how many times do we really really yearn for something that won't make us happy it won't fill us up it won't do anything for us i mean what happens when you get the latest newest greatest video game i don't even know what what the we thing was big for a while is it still the latest and the greatest one, like, who you mm-hmm. Or is there something better? asked. What's <laughs> better? The 360. The 360. Is 360
2: better? asked.
0: <laughs> is the 360 after the Wii or before? Before. Oh, okay. So the next one is
2: the Wii
0: except for the PlayStation 3. Uh, is PlayStation 3 after the Wii. I think so. But be- uh, maybe these are all different categories. Even I don't yeah, have any yeah, idea. Okay. Well, when PlayStation 4 comes out, <laughs> or I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen, what's going to be post-Wii Yee? <laughs> you, know, you get the Yee, and you get PlayStation 4, what's going to happen? People going to want it. And how bad will they want it? So I through the stores, Yeah. And they're gonna feel like, oh man, I've only got a Wii. I want a Yee. You know? I only got a PlayStation Three. I can't wait till I get PlayStation Four. PlayStation Three is lousy. Isn't that the way we are? We cell phones. Yeah, cell phones. Wow. They lined up for days waiting for the. What was it? The iPod. iPod. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Is there anything else a phone can do besides what some of these do? I just want one that I can
2: talk about.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, if they ever had one that actually uh, you could hear anything, I'd be nice. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, don't know anything how we are. <coughs> you know, and maybe, maybe gadgets aren't your thing. Maybe it's something else. But, but the point is, we've got to be content with what we have. You know, and if God has only given us the resources to have something very basic, you know, beans and rice every day, Then let's enjoy beans and rice. You know? It's fine. Who cares? It doesn't make any difference. That's what he's saying. Don't set your heart on being rich.
2: How do you see that uh, godliness
0: actually is a means
2: of great gain?
0: Well, I think he's saying there is great benefit and blessing in godliness, not financial gain but another kind of gain as long as you're content with the financial stuff you've got. So I think he's switching the sense of gain and that, that, yeah, it is, but not the kind of gain you're thinking about. I see a couple...
2: When he adds that, when, when accompanied by contentment, you know, in a sense, what you have becomes a lot more when you're content with it. If that's so even financially if you have ten dollars but you want a thousand you know you're looking for the gain but suddenly if you become godly you add the godliness to become content with what you have wow I've got ten dollars you know so even in that itself you're no
0: longer no longer searching in excellent point I think you're exactly right contentment changes how we look at it I mean, contented people are are happy. I am amazed. It has helped me a lot. Not as much as it should have, but it's helped me a lot being in Brazil and seeing people with very simple lifestyles being happy. Can you be happy without a car? I know a lot of people who are. Can you be happy eating beans and rice every single day? The only two meals you get every day is beans and rice. I know a lot of people who are. Can you be happy without a phone? I know people who are. You know, can you be happy without a computer, without a cell phone, you know, without gadgets? I know plenty of people who are. Can you be happy with basic clothes and not hardly any of them? I know people who are. Can you be happy without a washing machine, wash all your clothes by hand? I know plenty of people who are. You know, I mean, you can be happy with a lot of stuff. The Christians, good Christians in Brazil, they're fine with what they've got. You know, just like good Christians here are fine with what they've got. There are greedy people in Brazil. You don't have to be rich to be greedy. And there are some of those that they're miserable with what they've got. But I point out to them, well, I know Americans who have a whole lot more than you do and they're miserable just the same way, wanting more than you have. It's all in our mindset. Contentment is not based on what we've got. Contentment's our attitude toward what we've got, however much or little that might be you're content with X, you'll be content with Y. If you're not content with X, you won't be content if you get Y squared. You know? That's all in Hollywood.
2: Applies to a lot of other things, too. I mean, obviously that's the big thing, but you, you might think of your appearance, your weight, your size, your height, um, anything like that. People spin mm-hmm. your hair. What hair? <laughs> I mean, I can get enough. hair plugs. You know, <laughs> <that>. <laughs> but if you're just content with what you have, that's all I've got. So I, I'm content with it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it is amazing sometimes. You know, you look at somebody else and you think, why are they so vain, preoccupied <laughs> with something? Then you look at yourself. What are the things we're preoccupied by? What makes so much difference to us? I can think of things in my life that seem to be so important, that I just really think about, that are really, man, this is really. <coughs> like, why? So many of them. It doesn't make any sense why I care that much. You know, things here don't last anyway. Who cares? I, mean, I think that's, we've got to hold what we have with a loose end. Be thankful. If you got here, thank God for it. But it's not a big deal. If you don't have it, you don't have it. You know, if you're tall, that's handy occasionally. If you're short,
1: cool. Handy occasionally.
0: It is too. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and and whatever
1: else.
0: <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if you're cute, you know that's cool. But I remember, this this might be a little surprised but you know there's there's detriments in everything I knew a guy when I was at Florida College and I think this is really kind of the truth I mean this is what he felt but I think there was some truth in him he uh he was was really nice looking and it was really bugged him because he couldn't tell when girls liked him for liking him and when they liked him for being nice looking he was kind of burned out on girls somewhat because they'd throng around him but not because of anything other than he was a nice looking guy And uh, that really bugged it. Well, you know, I hadn't ever thought about how much a detriment that would be. But, you know, uh, (laughs) anything can be kind of a problem. Uh, Be content with what you got. If you're, you know, not much to look at, well, yeah, that's not important. If you're a striking beauty, well, you know, thank God and just be careful. (laughs) Whatever. Anything else on that? All right, let's uh, move on a little bit anyway. Uh, 11 to uh, 16.
1: But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. to which you are also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only Pontenet the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has an immorality dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen.
0: He addresses Timothy in verse 11 as what? The Which the false teachers want. Timothy's the man of God. He needs to flee from these things. The margin of safety can never be too great when it comes to the love of money we need to get as far away from that as fast as we can and pursue other things that are much more valuable if you want to be passionate about something and crave something and love something why not righteousness godliness faith love perseverance gentleness there are things to really yearn for and and be you know, eager for. Contentment's not always good. We shouldn't be content in these areas. We ought to keep pursuing. We ought to keep craving and growing in this. That's what we need to pursue. It's not that we don't need to have goals in our life, but the goals shouldn't be how much how much money I'm going to have in, you know, investments by the time I'm 30. The goals ought to be, you know, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Comments and thoughts on 11 what's the difference between righteousness and godliness good question righteousness i think would be more justice and fairness and perhaps even kind of purity godliness is more the idea of respecting god of fearing god of honoring god verse 12 to fight the good fight of faith. What wonder what he means by that. <clears throat> In the context overall of the book, I think I know. What do you say? What is it? The false teachers? I think so. I think the good fight of faith is probably a fight against the false teaching. There are other ways you could look at that. But it seems to me like that's been a theme throughout the book. And he's going to even close with that in the last two verses. So I suspect he means that. And uh, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession. You confessed Christ in the presence of many witnesses. You know, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus that you keep the commandment with purity. You know, be faithful. Do what's right until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to constantly keep in our mind that Jesus is coming back and so we do what we do in view of his return. Probably, as Paul got older, he may have thought even more about Jesus' return. And I think we ought to think Uh, more and more about the return of Jesus the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the proper time who? well the blessed and only sovereign that is the governor, the ruler the king of kings the lord of lords who alone possesses immortality I thought we would live forever too why would you say he alone possesses immortality?
1: he controls it
0: Yes, he possesses it. We receive it as a gift. John five talks about how only the Lord has life in Himself. Our whole life is a gift from God. It's derived from Him. God possesses immortality. That's a that's part of His nature. Who and He dwells in unapproachable light, who no man has seen or can see. To Him be honor, eternal dominion. Amen. It's just encouraging to see him praise God that way. Just be almost taken up in meditation about the greatness of the Lord and the honor and the dominion that he deserves. I don't know that we praise God as much as we should in our conversation. And I think it's appropriate to reflect praise (laughs) to God in the things that we say. Comments and questions. Anything? You want to say on all right? All right. Well, I think I'm going to save the last five verses for next time. And uh, do that along with uh, starting 2 Timothy. Um... And next time will be two weeks from now.
1: It's off, on, off,
0: on. Right. That's I think the plan, although uh, it might not be off. Oh good. Because yeah, I think I think actually I may be able to do every week of February except for this first week. I think that's probably the best.